We're on a bull run, but does that doom us for 2014? You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. It is Monday. I'm sorry, it is Monday. Uh, I'm Matt Kopenheffer, and right here, David Hansen. David, there was a Louisiana man who apparently fell asleep on his flight and was locked inside the plane. What is the worst place you've ever fallen asleep? First of all, that's amazing. That is. And I love how it's a Louisiana man. It's like, it would be a Louisiana. <laughs> Nothing against Louisiana, <laughs> but it would be. No, no, no. That was something against Louisiana. And I encourage, WTMI at Fool.com, I encourage every, every Louisiana listener to email us to tell David how misguided he is. Weirdest place I've fallen asleep? Or worst place you've fallen uh, asleep. I mean, what are we categorizing as sleep here? If alcohol was invi- involved, <laughs> maybe there was an interesting place, but I don't, I don't fall asleep easily. I'm not a plane kind of guy. I don't fall asleep sitting on a chair, so I don't have one. Do you my have one? worst, most of my college courses. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's get to the headlines. First headline. This is from the Wall Street Journal. Heady rally, unlikely to repeat next year. Uh, the article or the column, as you might expect, follows a lot along the lines of that headline, basically saying we've had a great run so far in 2013, getting to the end here, but people are getting concerned about 2014, what kind of returns we could see ahead. Uh, here's the problem. The correlation between stock returns from one year to the next, going back to 1971, is negative 0.07. Is that good? It is very close to zero meaning that one-year stock returns have very little to do with the next-year stock returns, so we're not going to uh, be able to read too much from what happened this year. And it's also, too, it's because a year is just an arbitrary amount of time just because it ends January, December. December, yeah. It doesn't mean anything, so not not too surprised that there's no, no correlation there. And the article talks about uh, and a lot of quotes from from market strategists, investment people saying... Like you, you're a market strategist. I'm, I would not say I am. <laughs> uh, they say, we expect better returns, or, or good returns, but nothing great. Maybe 2 4%, nothing flashy. And I think what investors should remember is, that's possible. Yeah, we could definitely see 2% returns next year, but that doesn't mean we're going to kind of just flatline at 2%. It could be a pretty wild 2014 and still get 2%. And I went back and looked... I got a trivia for you, okay? Uh-oh. Biggest one-day drop in the last 50 years. What year was that? Biggest one-day drop in the last 50 years. So going back to ni- like roughly 1960? Right. 2009. It was not. It was in 1987. Oh, oh. Of course. <laughs> the 20% drop. Okay, so 1987 had a 20% drop in one day. Mm-hmm. The returns for the S&P that year, up 2%. So 1987, pretty crazy year, and the annual returns were still 2%. So yes, we could have low returns next year, but that doesn't mean it's going to be completely flat. Uh, So just get ready, maybe. Here's here's one other interesting thing from that column. At the beginning of the article, sometimes I get hung up on, on little things, but at the beginning of the article it says, Will markets keep rising, powered by steady economic growth and low interest rates? So keying in on that low interest rates part of it. I was kind of interested. Are low interest rates really powering the market? It seems like a given. Everybody says, oh, the Fed's mm-hmm. keeping interest rates low. That's pushing ahead the stock market. I, I'm, I guess I'm big on correlations today. But I went back and looked at the one-year returns for the S&P 500 and the target Fed funds rate, again going back to 1971. So the correlation between the returns from the S&P 500 one year and the, the Fed funds rate at the start of that year Negative 0.026, 
again, very close to zero. So the Fed funds rate does not appear to have a very big impact on one-year mm -hmm. uh, stock returns. Correlation for five-year returns in the beginning Fed funds rate is a positive 0.098. So again, very, very low, close to zero, but interestingly, a little bit higher and positive. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that we should be taking for granted that the low federal funds rate is actually driving the stock market. Uh, maybe some other things uh, in there that are I doing more. So. A lot of numbers. A lot of numbers to start the show. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm big on numbers. I was big on numbers this morning. They help. Sometimes you gotta got to do that. All right, second headline, going over to Reuters. Big banks see rich opportunities in world's poorest. And it's talking about poor countries. And the stat that really jumped out to me in this article was half of the world's adults do not have a bank account. That's 2.5 billion people do not even have a bank account. And on one hand, that's kind of kind of sad and kind of not good because mm -hmm. people don't have access to a financial system there. But on the other hand, it highlighted the opportunity we have all over the world, Africa, parts of Asia. It's pretty incredible. And um, the article talked about Citigroup, not surprisingly, as kind of this global bank that can take a lot of this market share. Even if it's just a small market, mobile deposits in Africa, they can still make a business there. Mm -hmm. But the businesses that stood out to me more were MasterCard and Visa. They really have the ability to, to be scalable in these countries, more so than a bank coming in, setting up shop. They already have the infrastructure in place. They, they can come in. They have the value proposition. So when we talk about this global opportunity, it really is incredible for these companies like MasterCard and Visa. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because with, with the banks, there's obviously opportunity there. But I think it becomes a lot of the same question is, is even you have it here in the U.S., how the, how, how the banks are dealing with uh, uh, lower market customers mm -hmm. and trying to make money on those accounts. And they're going to face the same challenge with that all over the world. But then it, it seems like, and in, in reading this article too, seems clear that a big part of the opportunity isn't just in having the bank account, it's in the, the, the way the money is exchanged. Right. And in Visa and MasterCard, like you said, opportunity there, maybe even PayPal oh. over at eBay. There you go. I know one of your... I think, I think the main takeaway, though, is that there's a, lot of, there's a lot of reasons here to be optimistic about the next 50 years. I mean, half of the world's adults don't have a bank account. If we can just get that to a fourth, that can be incredible progress. There you go. No more, no more burying... Well, I guess, do people bury money in other countries, or is that just the U.S. I think they probably burying do. gold in the backyard? All right, last headline. We're going to Bloomberg. Glass-Steagall fans plan new assault if vocal rule deemed weak talking about this a bunch last week. You're, just, la you're laughing already. Glass-Steagall fans. I'm just picturing some like nerdy guys with a Glass-Steagall poster in their bedroom. Or the foam, like, the number yeah. one foam hand. Number one Glass-Steagall. Glass yeah. Yay. Um, we talked a lot about the, the Volcker rule, and I, I'm, there are plenty of Volcker rule foam fingers out there, uh, finally about to, to come about. The problem here is that it just, it's too bad in thinking about this that Glass-Steagall really would have prevented the, the crisis that we had. Uh, there are a lot of people that want to think that Glass-Steagall would have been, uh, been the pill that we needed, mm -hmm. the, the cure-all that, that would have prevented the financial crisis. You know, I think about things like this. J.P. Morgan was one of the best performers through the financial crisis. That was a, a, a major example of an investment bank-bank combination. Bank of America, on the other hand, had a very small uh, investment banking operation prior to bringing on Merrill Lynch, prior mm -hmm. to buying Merrill Lynch, uh, and yet it, it suffered greatly. It suffered partially from bringing on Merrill Lynch, but much more right. 
from bringing on Countrywide, not an investment bank. Mm-hmm. It was a mortgage operation. So t- to me, the focus on Glass-Steagall is yet another way to try to scapegoat the problem. The problem was really widely distributed. It was within consumers. It was within banks. It was within the government. There were a lot of pieces that had to come together in order to create this crisis. And by just saying, oh, well, if Glass-Steagall was in place, we wouldn't have had the crisis, I think that's um, malarkey. Right. And, and the article is saying that the Glass-Steagall fans are waiting to, to pounce if the Volcker rule isn't tough enough. My first thought was, I mean, I know no one's coming out and asking me what we should do, but why don't you give it a minute? I mean, why don't you <laughs> let the rule see how it plays out just because it comes cats. out and maybe, and maybe looks weak. Like cats, like yeah. wild cats. I don't know. I'm with you, though. Big, giant. It wasn't. The investment claws. banks were a problem. Lehman Brothers Sharp was claws. a problem. <laughs> it was the catalyst. But it was, it was mortgage lending that really got us into the problem. It was the countrywides of the world. So it... I'm with you. You're starting to get a little fired up here. <clears throat> it's unusual. <laughs> I like it. All right. Let's, uh, let's move on to the focus. Let's uh, keep some of that fire going. Uh, focus for today, uh, B of A or B of I. This, we were looking at an article from one of our foolish writers today, uh, Jordan Wathen. Got a picture of that. Nice picture of that right up there. Better Buy Now, Bank of America or B of I. Jordan runs through a few different points looking at the... the uh, differences between the two. Were you sold in one direction or another based on Jordan's uh, analysis? Sold in one direction very strongly, no. So I'm sorry, Jordan, you didn't completely convince me. But I think he points to a, a really useful exercise that investors can do if they're between two stocks or between five, ten stocks, and they're saying, I'm trying to find the best one. And what he does is basically lay it out over the next 10 years, kind of saying, what does this bank need to achieve in the next 10 years in order for me to get a return that I'm looking for? And the numbers for B of I and Bank of America, this is how they broke out, and I'll say them real quick. If B of I grows its book value at 15% a year for the next 10 years, which would be an incredible run, and it trades at three times book in 10 years, you get 12% annualized returns. Pretty darn solid. For Bank of America to match that, they have to grow their book value at 9% a year, so not 15% a year, and only trade at 1.5 times tangible book. So you kind of look at the two scenarios and say, what's more likely? And I know we can't say with certainty what's more likely for those two banks in the next 10 years, but you can kind of start to think, how likely is it for Bank of America to do that? What do they have to do to get there? And I think you can get a better understanding of what it has in front of them in terms of opportunity and also threat. So I think that's a good exercise just to lay two banks out next to each other and compare and say, what are the expectations that, that look like here? And of those two, I would probably lean towards Bank of America just because 15% a year for 10 years is still pretty heady growth in trading at three times book. So I was somewhat convinced with Bank of America, but not totally. I, I think B of I could do it. What do you think? So uh, I, I, thought, I thought there were a few interesting points to take away here. Uh, you covered you covered some of them. Uh, when you invest in a company with a high valuation, I think that you need to be. First of all, you're, it's got to be growing fast. I mean, why else would you be paying a high valuation mm-hmm. if it's not growing fast? But you have to be ready to hang on to it for a long period of time. Like you said, Jordan yeah. was talking about twenty years because. It's over that time period, that kind of time frame, that the compounding and the growth can really pay off for you despite the, <clears throat> the high initial valuation. And a corollary to that, I think, is that when you're thinking in those kind of terms, those kind of long terms, a high valuation does not need to be a showstopper. So if you, if you legitimately think a company can maintain high rates of growth for a long period of time, you can pay a higher valuation and still get a really great return. And 
you know, getting 9%, getting 10%, getting 12% per year over a very long period of time is very, very meaningful. Right. Now, one thing, uh, Jordan, in his analysis, looked at what would happen if the valuation, the, the price tangible book value for uh, B of I fell down to one times. And I think investors have to be prepared for scenarios like that. But again, if you're, if you're assuming that high rates of growth will continue, the likelihood is, is that the valuation won't fall that mm-hmm. much. So if you look at a really fast grower and has a high valuation, maybe the peak valuation that it's at right now won't maintain, but you'll probably still have a relatively high valuation as long as the growth continues. The problem is, is that if the growth doesn't continue, you face that double whammy of now you have a slow grower mm-hmm. and it, the valuation is going to fall drastically. So you're going to lose on all fronts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, w- I would say that my bottom line kind of along the same lines as you, uh, I lean more towards Bank of America in, in this comparison. And it's not necessarily just because of the, the high valuation of, of B of I. My concern is, is more mainly that I'm not 100% sold on B of I's model. And it, I, I worry just a little bit when I see financial, certain financial services companies, particularly within insurance and within banking, growing very fast. It can be done and it can be done right, but it gets more difficult because it's such a, it's a risk management business. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that B of I hasn't done a fantastic job so far. But there are a lot of there are a lot of unknowns when you have a, a young financial services company growing very fast. Yeah, and to step back from the numbers for a second, we talk about the business model and what's potentially sustainable for ten years. It could be a great model that B of I has, but I'm also I'd be more willing to bet that Bank of America's business model is going to be around, maybe more likely to be around in ten years with the investment bank, with the wealth management, with the mortgage lending. I would, I would bet that way, that well, even, their model is more sustainable. Even on the consumer banking side of Bank of America, I think one of the big attractions of, of uh, Bank of Internet is that it ha- it's this technology-enabled business. It's, we're, we're seeing more uh, the ability to bank over mobile devices, to bank on the Internet. But Bank of America has, has not at all missed out on this. Bank of America has maintained a high level of deposits despite uh, uh, ch- trimming branches. Mm-hmm. Uh, Patrick Morris uh, for us actually wrote an article about that, I think, uh, this past weekend. Uh, and has been aggressive in growing its mobile banking business and its online business. Uh, and that's good for Bank of America. Um, and so it's not missing out on, on that great technology. Yep. Moving on to the mailbag. Uh, we have an email address. The email address is WTMI at fool.com. We love to get to questions and comments and compliments for David mostly uh, to make him feel happy. <laughs> email from today. Uh, the email is, with all of the banking talk on your podcast, I have never heard you mention using the financial services of a company such as TD Ameritrade. Is there a downside compared to my local bank or an internet bank such as B of I? I like to have all my finances under one umbrella, and their, and their solutions seem to fit my needs. That question is from Paul Cozy. Uh, I, I think like with this is, this is more a question around using financial services as opposed to investing in financial services companies. But I think it's a good question for us to address here because when we think about investing in these companies, we need to think about, well, what's the – What's the potential consumer who's who's using this service? And is one service automatically better than the other and going mm-hmm. to just attract all of the uh, consumers? 
I, this question jumped out to, me, out to me because I use the banking services of E-Trade and have been very happy with them. There are certain shortfalls to it. So, for example, uh, depositing money is a little bit more difficult. Um, I, haven't, I actually haven't checked recently, but I don't believe uh, E-Trade still, ha- still hasn't caught up in terms of having that, uh, you know, you take a picture mm-hmm. of your check and you can deposit it that way. But frankly, I have very few people giving me uh, paper checks right. anymore, or frankly, even giving me cash <laughs> when, when when I need when, when I have a friend that owes me money or something like that. I, I just say, hey, give it to me on PayPal. And actually, uh, Google has has a solution now where you can just send money over over Gmail using your Google Wallet, which is pretty cool and maybe something for for uh, PayPal to be <laughs> thinking about as as a competition. So E Trade banking for me has been has been great. I, mm-hmm. It's been pretty seamless. I, I haven't had a problem with it. And moving around as opposed to using, we answered a question, I think it was last week, about uh, credit unions. Uh, I've tended to bounce around. I've lived in a lot of different places. So uh, banking with E-Trade makes that uh, particularly easy. Uh, as compared to uh, banking with Bank of America or uh, B of I, as he points out, I, I, I don't know. I, I kind of... Mm-hmm. Y- this is this is one of those funny things about um, about the banking business is that to some to some consumers it becomes more of a commodity. To me, it's a little bit more of a commodity business. Like uh, like Paul said here, I do I, I appreciate having all of my finances more or less under under one roof. I we have some other accounts elsewhere, um, but I like having that uh, the retirement accounts and the banking and everything with E Trade. Um, but uh, <clears throat> there may not be a strong opinion that people have. And so when we were talking about the credit unions last week, I said that the marketing might of the big banks makes a difference. And I think it does yeah. because to a lot of people, they don't have a strong opinion. Do I go with, uh, do I go with Bank of America? Do I go with Wells Fargo? Or do, do I go with the credit union? Well, whoever's in your face and you know the brand and, and, and you're like, oh, well, I see commercials for Wells Fargo all the time. I think that helps. Um, and in B of I, of course, I mean, they, they pay high, high rates of interest. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to some people, that may make a difference. It hasn't made a difference to me. I, you know, it's not something that, that I'm willing to rush out and use a different bank because I'll get a couple. Particularly right now, I think it's percentage, like a percentage point. Just crushing it. How about Breaking you? in the dough. How about you? Um, I don't know. I think it's interesting that when you talk about banking, the barriers to entry are, are very low in terms of switching. Mm-hmm. switching costs, but kind of the mental barriers that people have are, are very high. People don't like moving around their banks. I think that's interesting, and you talked about how you see it as more of a commodity business, and I think younger generations may see it that way. Mm-hmm. You think about where wealth is concentrated now, it's not with younger generations, so it'll be interesting to see how that changes kind of over the next 20 years, whether it, people move between banks a much at a much quicker pace than someone who's 70 years old today is probably not going to be jumping around bank accounts. Um, so I think it's an interesting thing to watch. It, it definitely it makes sense to have everything under one roof. It, I think it can it can be a commodity business, but it isn't always. It mm-hmm. it, it just it, it kind of is to me. Right. Um, and yeah, so I, that's that's a good question. And, and I and I think it boils down to different people have different needs in their banking services, and and to some extent that's why we have all of these different banks taking slightly different strategies because they're going to attract and serve a different type of customer base. All right. Game for the day. We've got a little grade it going on. Uh, we're making the grade. I always get that wrong. I always get that wrong. This is, uh, we've got two scenarios here. For each scenario, we are going to do a beautiful 
artist's rendering of our rating of that particular thing. For listeners, we will, don't worry, we will describe what these beautiful drawings are, and frankly, you probably benefit from not seeing them. Uh, first scenario, ignoring the soft rates, uh, that, that is the, um, ignoring the soft rates and investing in reinsurance right now. So the soft rates, that's the cyclical movement of the, of the rates mm-hmm. that insurers get in the reinsurance industry. They've been low. David, what do you think about this? Drew a magnifying glass there, and it's finding a small dollar sign. Yes, that's a magnifying glass, <laughs> and it's finding opportunity. I think just blind and blindly throwing your money at all reinsurance, that's probably not a good idea right now, but I think there are some good ones out there. I'll steal one from you. Oh. This is a company that, that you like, and you may I be ta- about to talk say. about it. It's Platinum Underwriters. The ticker is PTP, and they've grown book value at 9% annually over the last 10 years, and they've done that mainly... By buying back stocks since the middle of 2007 to today, they've reduced their share count by 54%. So these guys have just been animals in buying back their own stocks. So I think there are still some very run, well-run companies out there. So I think you can find good deals, but don't blindly throw your money out there. What do you say? I Ignoring soft rates and investing in reinsurers right now, I give that a three smiley faces out of five. <laughs> three smiley faces out of five. I think that uh, yeah, there there are good there are good insurers to buy right now. So on the one hand, what I'll say is that Berkshire Hathaway, which has big stakes in Munich Re and Swiss Re, has not recently added to either of those made meaningful additions to those positions uh, recently. On the other hand, in 2012, at the end of 2012, Markel, who's another insurer that we have a lot of respect for here, bought an entire reinsurer. So obviously, they're not too worried about it. Uh, reinsurers are trading at low valuations, and you can get uh, good deals on a valuation basis right now. So go ahead, dig in, find the ones that you want to own because they have good management, because they have good capital allocation, and, and go with those. All right. Next scenario. Last scenario. Number two, mimicking Warren Buffett's investments at Berkshire Hathaway. I'm going to give this one a, a B plus, and... I think it's a, a B plus with a, it depends on who you are. If you're going to just blindly make investments and you're not going to put in the time to, to really find the ones that you want to hold for a long time, I think you could do a lot of worse things than following Warren Buffett's investments at Berkshire Hathaway. If you would have done that over the years, maybe you wouldn't get in at the best prices, but you'd hold great companies like Coke, Wells Fargo, American Express. So maybe not follow it blindly, but I think you can do a lot worse than following Buffett. Did I say, say blindly? I did, I did say mimicking, not mimicking blindly. I've got a six, a six minus here. The, uh, it, like you said, this, my thought exactly was that you can do worse. Mm-hmm. You can do worse than buying the same things that Warren Buffett does. At the same time, I, I wouldn't encourage anybody to follow any given money manager blindly unless you're just investing in a mutual fund and you're letting them do it. Mm-hmm. The problem with mimicking Berkshire Hathaway is you don't get advance notice of what he's doing. And it's not until after he's done something that you're going to know that he's done something, Warren Buffett that is. And a great example of that is the recent investment in ExxonMobil when not this past, uh, so, so Buffett has to disclose the positions or Berkshire Hathaway has to disclose his positions every quarter. So not this last quarter, but the quarter before they issued a, a report to the SEC that basically said, hey, we're building a p- big position in Exxon, but we don't want to let the public know yet because it'll move the market and we don't want it moving against us. And the SEC basically said, okay, fine. 
So they had a note in their filing to the public that said, hey, we're building a big position. We're not going to let you know what it is. And it wasn't until this last quarter, after they'd already built a big position, that they said, oh, yeah, it's ExxonMobil. Yeah. So that's, that's one of the dangers of, of mimicking what Buffett's doing because you're going to be a day late and possibly a dollar short. All right. Finishing off on the Twitter sphere, David, first tweet. We are running low on times. So Rapid super fire. Fast. First one is super from fast. Justin Boucher. Boucher. Yeah. He says, thoughts on the Berkshire acquisition of NV Energy? Quick thoughts. Yeah, quick thoughts. It's, it's fine. Uh, the, um, the utility industry, the regulated utility industry is going to, uh, it hinges on the ge- geography that it's serving. I think the uh, Las Vegas Valley is a good growing geography, rebounding nicely from the financial crisis and the housing crisis. Uh, and it's, this is a good way for Berkshire to put some of its money to work. All right. Second tweet. Number two. Michael Soares, uh, Anneli, NLY, has been through its low interest rates are rising environment before uh, in 2006 and 2007. Yes, profits fell, but they stayed profitable. Yeah, and he's, he's referencing the, the Goldman Sachs sell report that came out last week. Goldman Sachs saying, we don't want to hold Anneli, recommend you sell it. I think he makes a good point that they've been through this before. We've talked about that on the show. This is the, one of the oldest mortgage rates out there. Yes, profitability will fall, but I think they have the right minds in place to get through it. Wall Street looks one year ahead. Yep. It's a very different, it's a very different picture. What can you say? Final All right. tweet. Final tweet. I can say just that. I just said it. It's <laughs> from Kate. She's at K.A. Tall. Econ terms that could also be punk rock band names. Moral Hazard, Black Shoals, Interest Tax Shield. What is yours? I don't have one. I was going to ask you which one, of those, which one of those would you buy an album from first? Probably Black Shoals. Black Shoals? I've got my own name, though. Okay, let's see. I got one name. for you. Going with... Lazy Blair. Lazy Blair? Instead of Lazy Fair. Wow. They're blaring. It's blaring music. Punk rock. <laughs> You're not impressed. <laughs> you got a little too creative there. I'm, I'm buying the album from Moral Hazard because okay. I feel like that would be good workout music. All right. That's all we got for today. You can tweet us at TMF Financials. You can email us, WTMI at fool.com. That's our show for today. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. We'll see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.